0: Welcome back to Gale Force Wins Season 2. The Gale Force Wins podcast is proudly sponsored by Newfound Marketing, a digital marketing agency located in St. John's, Newfoundland. Visit our website at newfoundmarketing.ca to find out how we can help your business grow. Newfound Marketing, a compliment to your marketing team. How'd you go. Sounds good. Film are you it? all set to go?
1: Yeah.
0: Jerry, are you sure this is ready to go? Yeah, oh, this exactly. is the B roll. Are you in close enough, Jerry? I don't think you are.
1: I'm not out there.
0: Okay, and pause. (laughs) And welcome to another edition of Gale Force Wisdom. What a pleasure it is. Here we are in Dartmouth Crossing in Nova Scotia, and we're actually in uh, the hotel lobby of one of our former guests that have been on this show, and it's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, it's always fun to be in conversation with people that are doing interesting things, have done interesting things, and uh, I can tell you we're certainly excited about our next guest. I'm Alan Dale, and with me as always, my good buddy from the East End of St. John's, Jerry Carew. How are you, Jerry?
1: I am doing really well. As I always say, I am, but I am. And I got to tell you that this one I'm really excited about. Tom, sitting here, who will introduce himself in a second, and I started I started working uh, in the radio business in St. John's, Newfoundland, in the early 90s. <laughs> My first job, Alan, after coming out of business school. Tom was part of the management team there, and he was an impressive individual, had a lot on the go, uh, very uh, approachable, and I am fascinated by his journey. Had some recent health issues, we're going to get into all that, and I'll let yeah. Tom talk about it. But I'm telling you, Alan, I'm really excited about this because I feel like it's coming back to my roots. The very first sales job I ever had, this man was part of the management team.
0: That's excellent, Jerry. I can't wait to dive into it. Your first job in the early '90s—you were about 35 back then. Good for you,
1: getting a job
2: <laughs> that early I was just on. doing the math myself. <laughs> yeah, I was doing
0: the math there too. Tom, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Thank you very much. First of all, for the invitation, and, and great to uh, to catch up with you both in person because we've done this kind of virtually as a, as a catch up about a, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, my name is Tom Wormsby. Currently living here in Halifax as well. And uh, but Jerry's right—we uh, we worked together a, a long time ago, and I'd forgotten it was your first. Uh, a job out of business school wow yeah. Yeah. not my first yeah. job alan let's clarify that no right no no you're I the one A few school. jobs he, he, when i was no, in he my he
0: said team. his first job yeah, i thought i
2: heard that <laughs> well, <laughs> did i well yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah he's fact checking me he is indeed well he should be <laughs> and and uh, my journey currently is um I, i'm in public relations and communications that's really where i've been the last 20 years and it's been uh, it's been a great part of my career. I've had, have had, um, I've been blessed to have, a, I think, about three careers. That's the best way for me to describe it. And uh, but the PR piece has been tremendously rewarding. They've all been rewarding. But I really, I think, this is where the um, evolution was for me was to end up in this particular space, okay. and, uh, and and I enjoy it very much.
0: Tom, let's go back, before we get into those three careers, let's sure. go right back to the beginning. Mm. where did you grow up? How did you grow up?
2: Yeah, well, how, how and where are really different, I guess. Uh, born in Toronto, and uh, to Scottish parents who had uh, immigrated to Canada uh there were four of us uh, imagine now so it was my sister who's just about a year older than me and then less than two years after me were twins so we had four kids in the house oldest was three wow so that's a handful for two shift working parents uh, my father was police officer my mother worked uh, at, in healthcare as as x-ray technician in the hospitals and and uh but we went back to scotland actually as kids i spent uh, school Did here you? in scotland yeah went school in glasgow and uh, which really kind of set me up for eventually coming to Nova Scotia I think you know because I've got the Scottish piece looked after you know we've got Irish heritage and the rest of the family as well uh so that was really interesting going to school in Scotland for a year that was uh that was quite unique uh back to Canada how old were you then when you were Six twenty-seven or 627. Pretty young, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And that was still had ink wells on the desks, you know. Oh yeah, the roll-up chalkboard. Um, We still had milk before Margaret Thatcher killed the milk program, apparently in uh, in the UK. We used to get milk every recess. It was mandatory; you couldn't get out. So now, as an adult, I wonder about the poor kids who might have been lactose intolerant or something, (laughs) you know, or dairy uh, issues. But uh, yeah, that was that was quite unique uh, going to school uh, in Scotland. Uh, Nine of us living in a two-bedroom flat with my grandparents and one of my aunts, yeah. Two bedrooms, nine people. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, no fridge, we never fridge, but we had a pantry in the corner and a hole in the wall to keep the cold air coming into the pantry. My uh, grandmother used to go down to the market every day, and uh, yeah, it, was quite, uh, it was quite a unique experience. Yeah. And the four Canadians in the tenement, right?
0: What, what precipitated that move back to Scotland from Toronto?
2: Uh, my dad developed asthma when he came to Canada, and like many would have assumed, I guess, back then, it all was the climate. You know, talking the 50s. He'd done his time in the British Army. He'd done actually more than his national service requirement. And then he, he came to Canada, became a police officer. And he developed asthma. And then, so, you know, he said, well, maybe you need to go back. Maybe it's just the climate yeah. here is just in the cold. Even today, God love me, he's 86. And, you know, both parents are doing well. They're both 86. And in well, Canada? Yeah, they're yeah. yeah. And they still, uh, you know, they're still active. But the cold still gets to him. Right. So moved back and brought us all with us, right? My first airplane was, a. <laughs> Toronto to Glasgow, uh, Prestwick, I guess, airport. And uh, and that was our adventure. One suitcase, we sold everything. You know, whatever we had was in that's one suitcase. That's a big upheaval for a young family, isn't <laughs> it? No kidding, yeah. My brothers were just about kindergarten age, maybe, you know. Um, yeah, it was quite, it was, it was good. And we got the classic old person tale. It was literally a two-mile walk to school because that's the school my aunt taught at. So we had to walk with her to school and then back again every day. And uh, she eventually became a headmistress That so she's retired now as well. But uh, it, was quite, it was quite a unique adventure, for sure. And you know, culturally, it was different as well. But we went back, and then I think when my dad got there, he realized health was not climate-driven. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, I have to guess, you know, we never had that kind of conversation. But I assume he, he probably just recalled all the reasons why he wanted to be in Canada. And so my father eventually came back to his job. He'd taken a leave okay. from the police force. Right. And uh, had come back. And then we kind of had to finish what we were doing school-wise and stuff. And then we all came back as a family. You and come to Canada. You go back. Then you come back to Canada. Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the route. Yeah, so and that was it. And, but as a young man, I came down to Newfoundland um, and on, on a vacation, and uh, decided, well, hey, I liked it, you know. So I applied for a job at VLCM you know? and uh, and and got it. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'm moving to Newfoundland now. And uh, been kind of transient ever since. That was an on-air job, was it? The it first was. job. It was news, news and sports, <laughs> and a lot of legends in the Newfoundland broadcasting. Many have passed on uh, that I've worked with. Um, But, you know, Mike Critch, you know, who you see if you watch Son of a Critch, Um, Mark, who I've known since he was 10 years old, and you would know where Mark uh, lived. They lived in the house right across the lawn. I remember Mark cutting the grass. And uh, so Mark's playing his dad in that show. Right. And I worked with his father, Mike uh, Sr., and I worked with his brother as well, uh, as you would have as well. Um, uh, You know, we had, um, you know, George McLaren. you know, there were just so so many legends. Uh, Jerry, Phelan. Jerry Phelan. Jerry oh, Phelan. You know what? Jerry was uh, and is. He's still a good friend. We still stay in touch. But Jerry was a tremendous influence on me. He really taught me the, the news side of the business and, uh, and great as a mentor and a coach. I, you know, uh, He really did get me to, uh, to understand the business and it was, it was a tremendous learning. I was, very, I was lucky to work for such good people.
1: Well, I'm going to say this, Alan. I was a 100% commissioned salesperson, and Tom, part of the management team, the people at that station molded me, and it sustained a 30-year business development career yeah. for me. Uh, talk about Elmer Harris. Oh. Yes. Uh, oh, my yeah. Lord. It's funny,
2: I was thinking of Elmer just the other day myself. Yeah. yeah.
1: Incredible individual.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, the, you talk about complete and absolute decorum. The gentleman never ruffled. You know, he was complete. Uh, under control thoughtful person the entire time which was great because we were such a run-and gun industry mm-hmm. in you know and news was what we fed um, our listeners right that, that was kind of the core of voCM it was the guaranteed news station and so you know was whatever was going we were going hundred miles an hour down the road with our hair on fire and the uh, Elmer was just Tom, um, you he got it. He's just—he was the great uh, yin to the yang, right? How long has it been, Tom, since
1: you've been on the air at VOCM? Because you went by Tommy O. Correct. Yeah,
2: Brian Rogers uh, gave me that name. Pardon? I didn't start that way. That
1: wasn't for the news, though, was it?
2: No, that oh, was a show. I was doing it. No, I was doing it as news. Um, I was a news person. But Brian Rogers, who was uh, another great pro in the booth, what a pro! I learned so much from Brian uh, how to prepare to be on air. And, uh, and Brian, for some reason, just stumbled on my last name, which is not difficult. It's six letters, and you pronounce every one in order. Say <laughs> it for us, Ormsby. But people hear all sorts of versions of that somehow when it comes out. And Brian kept stumbling on it, and when he would introduce me for the news, and and so he said, "Okay, come." On. He even said, "Come on up, was Tommy O?" Tom, so he kept saying it. Then other people on the station would introduce me as that. Coming up to Tommy O, oh. and then eventually I was transferred out to Carbonear, Newfoundland, which is about 90 minutes from St. John's. It was the second largest station we had in the network to become the morning person, and uh, which was another great experience for sure. And people there used to use my name on air as well. They would call me Tommy O. And I I kept using my own name. Right. And then one day, I was at an event, and there was a wonderful na- lady, um, Doss Mercil from Harvard Grace. And it was a sports event, and she was probably in her 80s at that point. And she was, what a what's this lovely woman, great career. You know, She was getting inducted for her time playing tennis in Cuba in the like, 1930s or something. It was really it was unique. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I remember you know, what a what a wonderful woman. And she's I introduced myself and you know, I had my VLCM red jacket on, my blazer, and I. And she said, "Oh, do you know Tommy O?" And I already introduced myself as Tom Wars. <laughs> and she's, "Do you know Tommy O?" And I'm like, "Well, actually, that's what they call me." And that was the day I said I have to surrender. I'm gonna stop use. I have to stop using my own name because no one else was. And that stuck for all these years. Even people I run into today, maybe 30 years later, wow. still. That's what they'll call me. And yeah. anyone in Newfoundland who knows me, they'll call they all call me Tommy. So you haven't been on the air with Tommy O in? Oh, t- over 20 years. 20 years at least. That's I just, know Alan's dying to ask some Well, questions. there's a lot of
0: questions <laughs> in there, uh, Tom. So um, Or Tommy O. <laughs>
2: yeah. What do you want to go by here today? Well, it's funny. My family calls me Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Unless they introduce me to somebody, then they call me Tom. Yeah. Because my dad is Tom. And his dad was Tom. So to my Scottish family, I'm young Tom. Okay. Right? So I'm all of them, right? You're, all, you're everything. Okay, I'm young all Tom. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: let's go back to young Tom for yeah, a yeah. second. Uh, what was it about Newfoundland? You said you vacationed there and then you applied yeah. for a job. Tell me about what you found in Newfoundland back then that made you want to be there.
2: Well, it was just for me, you know, I had friends in Newfoundland at the time and uh, it was just a place that I had... Uh, you know, I was there and I, I enjoyed it, but I was also looking for work, mm-hmm. for broadcasting work, and, and it, I was working kind of part time in Toronto in radio. At um, at the time, CKMW was called then. It had a series of on air names. It was a sister station to CFNY, which is known now as the Edge in Toronto. Right, you know, very alternate rock and things like that. And you know, everyone always said if you're looking for a real full time gig to get your foot in the door, you have got to go east. Okay. so that, that was that was part of it right you know it was just uh, heading east to try to try to land somebody it's like going north
1: you got your foot in the door and stayed there
2: what 20 years oh yeah, <laughs> hey, yeah maybe was more. On, it was about it was about 20 but I think 19 I think yeah.
0: yeah you'd be the first fellow from Toronto to move to Newfoundland to get a job <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right and because normally back then of course yeah. there's a big influx yeah. of people from Newfoundland moving mm-hmm. to Toronto and further west right looking for mm-hmm. work so that was your first big gig then uh, uh, in
2: Broadcast? Full-time, broadcast full-time full-time salary broadcasting right because I've been doing part-time uh, broadcasting in Toronto and and we call it stringer work you know they need someone to go to the Blue Jays games and stuff which was oh that was awesome because that was when the Jays were just getting going I remember covering this rookie named George Bell who <laughs> 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 is now in the Hall of Fame I think right. um, you know so I was doing those kind of games but I wanted full-time I, I knew I wanted to be rela- uh, related to sports in a, in right. a career. And sports broadcaster was, uh, was certainly something that appealed to me. My sister was a, was a world-class sports writer. She recently retired, and she's still actually writing now, even though she's retired. Um, and so I, I thought, well, broadcasting, you know, that, that appeals to me. And back then, they kind of had to get your foot in the door somehow. There was right. very few broadcasting schools and degree or diploma-granting institutions.
0: Right. And d- So did you go down one of those paths academically? I did,
2: I did a part-time uh, course at Ryerson. Uh, at the time, it was called Ryerson Polytechnical Institute before it even became a university. Right. And I did writing for radio and television. Okay, and got, That's why I got hired into the part-time role in Toronto and then eventually the, the role in Newfoundland. Right.
0: <laughs> so thinking back to that small academic experience, I'm sorry, how long was the program?
2: Oh, it was a one-year part-time. A uh, right?
0: one-year yeah. part-time program. Thinking back to that now and all of the different communication programs that are offered today in colleges and universities, how different was it back then? What kind of things
2: were they teaching? Well, this, this was specific to writing, okay. right? So, for example, you know, if you want to put a storyboard together for um, you know a television show that's twenty-two minutes long, or you know, or a movie, and kind of teaching you how to write for that, and then how to write for the ear. And I think, for me, that was tremendously helpful because that's how my PR writing is. I write for the ear. Now, I can still write, because you know, I write a lot of speeches. Right. Well, I have written a lot of speeches for CEOs and others that I've had to work with, even for myself, I've had to do presentations. And that learning how to write for the ear was really, really important. And uh, I didn't know how valuable it was going to be throughout the rest of my career. Because I've got some people who are brilliant writers of technical documents and things. Well, you've got to put it to a three minute speech.
1: Just, just let me ask about that. We, we've, we've actually last night talked to someone about communications and we're fascinated by it. Yeah. Writing for the air, you're actually sitting there writing. Do you then read it out to see if it flows
2: properly? Like, how do you do That's this? That's the right way to do it. Uh, but you start, it's funny, when I'm writing for someone, I hear their voice and their cadence in my head. Interesting. Oh, okay. All right, so, you know, you see the memes pop up in your social media feed and you know, there's a picture of Morgan Freeman and, and there's some kind of meme and you're literally hearing it in his voice as yeah. you read it. And so when I'm writing, I'm writing to say, okay, is this for Jerry? Is this for Alan? Is this for me? Is this for who? And what's their style? And so as I write, obviously we've got some messages that we need to make sure get communicated across and heard and hopefully digested with the audience. And so that's what it's about is what message am I trying to write? How can I get that message out based on the person and the format? You know, Is it a panel? Is it someone who's going to be reading right from the podium? Are they doing a presentation? But I'm generally trying to, can I break this down so the person who has the least amount of knowledge in this field still can understand it? And then also trying to write in a way to bring the person with you to the message. And, and I say that not to influence them, but not to scare them. Mm-hmm. If you start with, because I've been involved in two mind closures, mm-hmm. having to put tools down for two minds.
0: Wow.
2: And one of them was instant, like told them that moment. And if you want them to hear what you're saying, you've got to make sure you, you know, take out trigger words that are going to put fear into them or get them to stop thinking or, or you know, stop hearing and all of a sudden their mind goes a thousand places. Right. So when I'm writing, I'm trying to write for that ear so that, can you hear the message in its full and entirety, and is it clear, you know, and that's that's really important because you can put down your message on paper and hand it to somebody, but if, the, if there's something in there that's going to stop them from reading and jumping to somewhere else, you've not communicated effectively.
0: How does, this is fascinating, I really find this fascinating. Um, how does that differ for, people often use the term understanding your audience or knowing your audience, that sounds a, a lot more sophisticated than what you're talking about there.
2: I don't, I guess it could be, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's being empathetic to whoever you're communicating to. All right? When I used to coach, I did a lot of media coaching for some of the executives and, and for my team and for supervisors who were going to be maybe at a career fair and maybe someone wanted to interview them. I always said to them, like, you know, when you see that lens in front of you and the microphone in front of you, that's, that's an avenue to where you want to go because at the end of that message, who are you trying to speak to? Is it the community members? Is it the government who's wondering why you're applying for a permit? You know, is it an environmental um, group of concern who's not sure about your proposal? And so I think when you the understanding the audience is probably more about recognizing who the audience is mm-hmm. and then maybe recognizing their knowledge in the subject matter. I'll give you a really good example if I may. So we I, I I had the pleasure of working with a lot of indigenous communities as partners across Canada, and when we started one of the mines, I got involved with. In, we were building the first diamond mine in Ontario. There was no Cree word for diamond, and there was no Cree word for haul truck, and so that's kind of understanding your audiences. It's no sense me going in and doing a brilliant presentation if I'm going to use a bunch of words that they can't translate, because well. it's going to land. So we had to work with the community and, and with their. Um, uh, their top, um, I going to say they're top translators who could really navigate both worlds and come up with a dictionary right. that could be acceptable to those. And So that's kind of understanding your audience, right, right to be an effective communicator. Right. No sense talking about haul trucks and diamonds and cutoff points. And if they're looking at you like, you know, it's just blank stares if they but don't understand the words. But I still understand, I'm still trying to grasp what you're saying here. There's, I've never thought
1: about this. You still have to convey the idea of the diamond.
2: Oh yes. Explain to me how you did that. Uh, like, well it was just a matter of trying to explain that inside the earth there were certain things we were trying to retrieve. And the way we would do it would be having to, in this particular case, dig a hole in the ground. Yeah. And then it, as the dirt and other pieces come out with it, we're going to run it through a facility and we're going to separate the dirt from the material we're looking for. And that material is a diamond. All right, so they. They didn't have a direct translation for the word diamond yep. in Cree, right? But and I can't recall at this moment. It's my fault for not remembering. But we uh, there was a word that they could right. use, yeah, to, to describe the diamond, right? right you know, okay. and sometimes it's yeah. it's a longer process. Like you know, sometimes you translate from English to French, and it seems like the translation is right. twice as long. We go from English to Cree, it's even longer right. than because it's kind of describing everything maybe in a yeah. really more wholesome way. Fascinating, Alan, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Oh, it really is, right? I mean, it, first of all, to discover that this, these words that we're using aren't going to resonate. It, it reminds me an awful lot of, Tom, when I first joined the Navy, I remember going through training um, with a lot of, of francophone uh, officers. And... We, we were, I was a, a Mars officer, a naval warfare officer, there's a lot of technical terms yes. that we were throwing around in English yeah. freely and I knew that my friends, my Francophone friends, this was, I mean, these yeah. words were hard enough for me to kind of get my head around or concepts were hard enough for me and then I was like, oh my god, how are these guys doing it? And then I watched these guys advance to admirals yeah. and things like that and I think, remarkable at their very foundation we were speaking not only was it not their language but we were speaking our language that was hardly understandable to us. And we never took that into account. We never acknowledged that this is going to be twice as hard for you guys to make it. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, and so
2: I understand 100%. Uh, you
0: know, and I, that resonates very strongly with me. That's fantastic. Tell me this, Tom. Do you remember the best speech you ever wrote? And maybe the opposite of that? <laughs>
2: Ooh, the best speech I wrote. Um, I'm proud of, of some of them. I guess uh, hope I'm allowed to be proud of things. I prides us in, right? but uh, there, Well, there was one uh, that I, I wrote not too long ago, actually, a few years ago, uh, when we were uh, introducing a new project concept. For a mine that we were intending, we had purchased a property in, in Northern, uh, in Nunavut actually, sorry, and we wanted to mine it completely differently. We wanted to reduce the environmental impact to almost zero. Mm-hmm. We wanted to change the way that we were working with the communities to provide benefits, because you know we found over the years of you know trial and error and working together that some community benefits work this way, some, and so we just we had to put a whole new concept on the table. And we talked about minimal environmental footprint, um, uh, minimal uh, power use, you know, no GHE, almost a carbon neutral project. And it was introduced at a technical conference actually in Ontario, and it was for the CEO of the time. And I wrote it for him, um, you know, we, we, we worked over the concept and what were the key messages and things. And he got a standing innovation at the end of it. Yeah. And it was I was proud of that one because it was a concept that the mining industry in the, our country had not ever right. tried. Yeah. Now we, at that point, still hadn't tried it, but that was our project intent. So that one went over really strong. got a lot of requests, can you come speak in Australia, can you come speak and talk about this mining concept, we just wanted to change the classic bring in as many trucks as you can and put this giant hole in the ground to, can we make this little tiny little hole and still maximize everything for the community. It may not come across... Um, right now is the way it did because it was a quite a long speech but a standing ovation at the end by the audience and so that was uh now
0: give me the opposite of that
2: <laughs> <laughs> what's one do you, you go back no, and say, no names have, no names, no names it was because it wasn't that they were really bad it was that i didn't know my speaker
1: by the way before you go into this we're called gale force winds but we we be discovered Gale force adversity leads to wins. <laughs> so with uh, that, so what do they say? Finish your story.
2: Calm waters never made a good sailor. <laughs> That's right. right. So so there were two, and it was the same thing. It was a general manager from one of the mines I was working with, and actually it was also the president, president and CEO of the company. Separate events, but same thing. You know, I need a speech, right? You know, I need a speech. (laughs) All right, so what And how
1: much time were you given to make this happen? Uh, Enough, you know. Okay. That that part's okay. So So we can't blame them for giving you short... No, no, no. So I wrote them them
2: each separate speeches, and they loved it. And then I heard them. And I'm watching them boot these things all over, you know, and I'm like, what? (laughs) And so what it was, (laughs) I didn't realize, and my fault may for not asking that they like to ad-lib right. as, as a as a habit. I didn't write these to be ad-libbed. I wrote these, you know, you know. We, we agreed on messages. They read them, you know, and said proofread and signed off on them, and, and then I watched them deliver them, going, oh, this is a train wreck going on here. And so, at the end, and the, the, the general manager at the time, he actually confessed afterwards and apologized. He said, oh, yeah, you probably noticed I, I, I like to ad-lib. I went, yeah. <laughs> and with, this, with the, the president CEO, uh, we had the same thing. I said, okay. You know, and uh, I'm not going to name his full name, Jim, but you know who you are. <laughs> and he's still a good friend today. Yeah. Um, and so we had to So for his, we, it was the same thing. He Because he was all over the place. Because he wanted to ad-lib. So we had to agree on a couple things. Here's your introduction, yep. you read it as is because right. there's, you know, guests you want to acknowledge or we're going to acknowledge we're on traditional lands or whatever the appropriate introduction should right. be. And then there's going to be appropriate exit. And then these are the bullets in here. Themes. You must hit these bullets in this order. You can talk to the main any way you want. But these bullets, these are the things that we, we must communicate to the audience. Right. So in your style you can, so that's how we address that. So I, I don't remember I never had a speech that you know they walked out on or anything like that, luckily in my career. Um, but those two were like, whoo, those were just, you know, you're just watching something happening and you just can't stop watching it because it's just a train wreck. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Alan and I are we, we are
1: exploring business communications. There's a fine line between reading a speech yeah. versus having some ad lib and being authentic. That's what I think we're trying to do here today: be authentic. Yeah. We're not reading notes, you know. Yeah. Uh, what do you? You know. What's the key?
2: Yeah. What's the key to that? The key, and this is where I've done a lot of coaching for different levels of staff, and I've always said to them, and you probably got these words in, in your in your Navy uh, past as well, but. Stay in your lane, right? You have to know the material. Yeah. You have to know the material. You have to know why you're there, what you're delivering, and you have to know what's in your wheelhouse and what's not, right? Because I've been questioned about everything. I've done interviews across this country, across the world. I've interviewed by Al Jazeera, you know. And so I kind of I have to know, you know, I have to be aware enough to know that I don't know everything. And if I don't, be honest about it. And mm-hmm. don't go there. People get in trouble when they go to places they shouldn't try to go. Yeah. Someone will ask them a question, honestly, and they're probably trying to help, honestly. But when it's outside of your knowledge area, or maybe you've just not been exposed to it, or maybe you don't have the latest information on it, that's mm-hmm. when people really struggle. So I always coach people. You've got, to, you've got to know your material, know what you're trying to deliver, and be confident in, in your own knowledge. But just be aware that if, like, I'm not... I'm not a miner as a miner. I spent I 15 years in mining, and it does, more than that in industrial work. You know, and I have a very good knowledge of a lot of those areas, but, you know, if someone wants to talk to me about, you know, what should the slope angle be on, a, on the right. open pit? That's not me. No. Exactly, yeah. Now, I can go get that information and I can communicate it, but I'm not going to ha- have a go at whether or not the slope angle should be 15 degrees or 18 degrees or two benches or whatever it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That's not my area of expertise, and that's kind of where I try to coach people. Right. If you're in logistics, Absolutely, you're the expert there. if I start asking about, you know, how many people do we need on staff, that's an HR question that you really have to know, don't guess, mm-hmm. let's get that over to someone who can get the right answer. And that helps people from not getting into areas where they're trying to help most often, but just sometimes it doesn't work.
1: So if you're asked, sorry Alan, if you're asked in an interview, yeah. acknowledge you don't know.
2: Absolutely, but you know, if you can get the answer, say it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I'm happy to go get the answer for you. And it's not yeah. to deflect, it's just to be accurate. You know, if someone says how many jobs you're hiring this year at the shipyard. You know, I'd have to check that number. Right. You know, because I know this year at the shipyard um, here in Halifax, for example, they had a Target it was pick a number it was like 200 or something like that, and I think they've all they've doubled it. Yeah. Right. So I might have known that information eight months ago, but now that information has been cha- changed. That's why you want to check if you're not in that specialty. Right. That's the reason you check. It's not to get out of the question in the interview. It's to be accurate with the person who's asked you the question.
0: Uh, Tom, one thing that, well, Jerry and I have had the pleasure, uh, privilege really, to interview an awful lot of people in different areas, and different fields. And one thing that often jumps out is people are reluctant to talk. They, they want to have speaking. They want the questions in front of them. They, they want to be scripted before they go in. Uh, I, we find, and particularly in business, a lot of people struggle with this, yeah. this natural Free, free flow authentic genuine conversation in a business setting explain yes. that to me
2: I think for many people it may be what level of exposure do they have to the entire business so I've been very fortunate in my last few roles where I've been at a very senior level you know I sat at the executive table and I was there for you know the budget discussions the Um, talent review sessions, the project submissions, you know, also when we had to go to corporate office, a tail between our legs because we're getting told off we're doing something in Canada maybe we shouldn't have been doing. And I think that's probably where the level of preparation concern may come from if someone has not had that uh, broader access to material it's really uh, that's where they're going to want to go and get sign off on information as well and and they should to be honest yeah again because budgeting could change you know every month to month all of a sudden you'd look at the last two and a half years with covid yeah mm-hmm. you're trying to put mm-hmm. plans together and you can't like you know you wait in six months for a household good to get shipped to your local Home Depot or something. You know, imagine what it's like trying to run a business. Right. And so I think that might be where the comfort level is coming from. But someone who's probably got more senior access should be more comfortable because they would have a more complete picture. Right. I, I. That's always how I tried to coach people. What do you? What do you know? Where's your level of expertise? Where's your? Where's your lane? Yeah. And I'll help you with that. You know.
0: Right. Uh, we've got, we went down a heck of a, a rabbit hole here, but it was very fascinating. Okay. So back to V O C M. So that was your first gig. You said you had three big ones. That yeah. was your first one. And then where did you move on to next from there?
2: Uh, briefly did some marketing for the golf industry in Newfoundland. Because I was trying to, I, I knew I wanted to go to corporate communications. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to head that direction. I had met some people in there. I had a lot of exposure because of my radio days. And when I was uh, working with Jerry in radio, my role was very out front and public for the company. And so. You know, I, I, we stopped counting. I've done over 1,500 uh, public appearances for the organization. Um, you know, everything from you know uh, little Miss and Mister Fire Chief to you know to uh, to big events. Uh, you know, I hope I emceed the chieftains when oh. they came to St. John's for their first concert. You know, wow. Played on stage with them for the final set as well. I just want to point that out, out there. I what think. did you play? Uh, Bolron and Bones. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. You, got, yeah. you got Alan's interest, Alan's a drummer. Yeah, there we go, Bolron and Bones. Respect, you. Actually, with most. the Chieftains. I've got my, my Boron signed up on the wall. I mean, you know, uh, poor Patty Maloney, God rest his soul, passed away this last year. Patty's on there as well. And mm-hmm. Dennis Bell, who was the harp player. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he was still with the Chieftains at the time. It was the first solo show of Mile One. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I so I knew I wanted so to So that's go four job. careers then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, was, he wants to go down this rabbit hole, <laughs> yeah. but anyway. Uh, so so, I, wanted, so I, I looked for roles, so I had a contract opportunity and did some marketing there, and then I had a, an opportunity with uh, the late John Effort who just passed, uh, you know, he was a provincial member of cabinet and also a federal member of cabinet, and John was building up a bit of a team in, uh, for his uh, office in Newfoundland, so I got in, it was more media relations focused and outreach in Newfoundland, so I kind of started, that kind of started me down a more public relations type uh, format for me. And so I did that for almost three years with John and, uh, and with the department, and then Uh, When the government changed over, of course, you know, everyone who was with the ministers at the time, you all exit, which is normal, and so looking for another opportunity. And a friend of mine who I'd met through Ottawa had sent uh, this email saying, look, there's a company looking for someone in public relations uh, and communications for a natural resources project in Ontario. Well, sounded like an interesting yeah. rabbit hole to go down as well, and, and so I did. It turned out it was De Beers uh, making their entry into Canada well, as uh, you know they had a 120 plus year history at that time around the world, and they were going to build Ontario's first diamond mine. So they were looking for someone to do uh, public and corporate affairs for the mine. In uh, the Project office was based in Timmins, Ontario, but the mine was another 500 kilometers north of that remote fly-in, fly-out, middle of nowhere, Hudson yeah. Bay Lowlands, James Bay Lowlands. And so that really, that then was the formal part of my my career so I, I maybe have, have my career in two chunks really you know the broadcasting side and government side which really was still community outreach and, and public relations and public facing events and stuff and then into the more formal corporate communications and so that uh, the De Beers uh, was almost almost 14 years I think Oh, wow. uh, De Beers okay. yeah uh, it was it was a great run they merged Canada and South Africa business units at the end right? and so they had actually put a role in for me but it was a role I really didn't really have a 100% interest in, so we agreed that I would just you know, yeah. thank you very much for our, our time and we'll part friends and uh, and ended up here in Halifax.
0: And then you make your way back east.
2: Yeah, I had uh, someone reach out to me about a role here in uh, in Halifax, the Halifax Shipyard. I was looking for a, a director of communications, and the timing was just right, that the beers piece was it was coming to an end, and this was something they wanted to put on the table, and so we, we said, what the heck? you know. Um, next next stage of the adventure and so we headed down east just in time for covid
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay so you came down awesome, shipyard yeah. was up and running
2: Shipyard contracts
0: in place y- yes building. we build ships here campaign was over yeah
2: won it, it right, that's right. Uh, the uh, the hmcs harry DeWolf wolf was under construction in its final stages of construction and this is the uh, the first uh, vessel in the uh, the Arctic and offshore patrol, the vessel fleet that uh, is being constructed. Six, well
1: done, ship. Six We've vessels. been on it. Yes, in yeah. the Turks and Caicos. <laughs> oh yeah, tough
2: life. Eh? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, we worked hard down there, Tom. That's it. Yeah, I, I can. <laughs> we tell. did. I can tell. And uh, and so yeah, so it came down to help because they um, they were the shipyard was maturing in a different you know they they they'd rebuild the shipyard you know they they got their start up you know they got the contracts in place you know construction was underway now they needed to to kind of work on some reputational issues and things like that so i came down to give them a hand with that right and uh, you know so great uh, a great opportunity to uh, understand more about the Navy. I've got uh, Air Force and Army in our family, no Navy. So this was, uh, was a very interesting journey for me to be. Your exposed. dad was the Army. My dad was British Army. Yeah, yeah. grandfather, great grandfather, British Army. And here um, we are now building ships
1: for the Canadian Navy. And your brother yeah. yeah. yes. in the Air Force.
2: Brothers in the Air Force, has retired after thirty-eight years. And our oldest uh, son and our daughter are both in the Army. Is that and right? And our youngest has, uh, is heading down that road as well.
0: Wow. So uh, that's fantastic. And thank you all for all that, the entire family for their service, right? (laughs) Well, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that, Tom, because...
1: Remember what Brian said?
0: Yeah, 100%. Being involved in building ships for our country is service in and of itself. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what it must have felt like to walk in and see those massive ships being put together and you being a part of telling that story because I have to tell you it's a beautiful story
2: it is i was really proud to uh, to be able to join the team i didn't quite understand um, defense contracting uh, because this is really what this is you're not is. alone tom yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, most of the world, if not all of the world. But, um, yeah, so I didn't understand it from that. So that was an interesting aspect. But I was very comfortable in large industrial settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I visited mines, obviously, here in Canada and other parts of the world in my in my role with De Beers. You know, I've seen 400-ton haul trucks going down the road, which are bigger than houses. Uh, you know, so to see stuff on a big scale, like, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with that. But it's still pretty impressive when you're see, seeing a 6,400-ton ship being uh, built right here in Halifax and Mm -hmm. the next ones are going to be even bigger than that when they get to the uh, Canadian surface combatants but it was really exciting Uh, and interesting to see how ships are built now you know I mean we have keel laying I'm doing that in quotes because it goes back to the old days when they took the best wooden beam and Mm -hmm. made the keel for the vessel now vessels of this size are all built in in almost like Legos Mm -hmm. and so there's no real keel laying although we still have a keel laying ceremony Uh, but it was really exciting to be uh, involved in that especially since I was involved in the delivery of the first ship Having to work with the Navy and the government of Canada on you know, that transfer of the ship, both legally and uh, ceremonially, over to uh, over to eventually uh, Commander Gleason, who is a fine gentleman. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: uh, Tom, uh, I just got to jump in there, Alan. Around this time last year, we were lucky enough to get a tour of the Halifax Shipyard, or the. That's hurricane. right.
2: That's how we, you and I reconnected. Yeah.
1: It was. I'm just getting goosebumps because I had never. You, you're comfortable with big. Things. I mean, I spent 30 years doing advertising. I'm proud of Irving. Frankly, it might sound weird to say that, but it's incredible. Pieces of steel, <laughs> the equipment that's needed to yeah. make this move—it's
0: incredible. Well, it, well, it was. It is incredible, right? Yeah. And uh, the whole national ship procurement strategy, whether it's Irving or Davy or C-SPAN, this whole shipbuilding industry springing alive in our country again. Which, quite frankly, it had kind of it had tailed off for uh, many, many years.
2: Well, when we delivered the uh, Harry DeWolf, it was the first Navy combat ship been delivered in 25 years. Right now, it's part of the combat package. Mm-hmm. You know, so people should. It's an Arctic and offshore patrol ship. It's got a very tremendous function. It's going to be probably one of the most versatile uh, type of ship in the Navy's history. Right, uh, but it's the first time they would had a ship like that delivered in over 25 years, and it was the largest one. Yeah, it was the largest one as well, and and the great thing about building ships at home. A lot of I used to have to deal with the regular you know traffic on your social media channels, stuff saying ah it's all too expensive. And for every dollar invested in Canadian shipbuilding domestically, it generates three. You can. Or you can take that dollar and send it offshore and never see it again. Right. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. And so it, it's doing you know, it's doing a lot of things, right? And it's bringing a lot of people into the shipbuilding industry, which, at your point, had kind of gone pretty stagnant for a, a while in Canada on that large, important mm-hmm. scale. And as we can see, with the events around the world now. I mean, you know, we do have to do our part in in, in the defense world. Yeah. And the uh, you know the. Uh, climate change now, access to the Arctic is going to be huge. I mean, you've got countries um, that some are not even polar countries building polar icebreakers for some reason. Because you know, right. they're planning on heading up there. So it's 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 a really interesting industry to be in. And, uh, and I almost three years uh, with the shipyard. So.
0: so there you go. So you talk about service being all around you, but service was you were serving right there in that moment. So thank you for that. So, so Jerry and I had the privilege of sailing on Toronto, uh, which I... Yes. A ship, actually, another ship built by Irving, Shipyard, yes. but that was built in New St. Brunswick. John, yeah. yeah, in St. John, New Brunswick. So we had the privilege of sailing from St. John's, Newfoundland, back to Halifax, went on board a ship, of the, uh, a tour of the Margaret Brook uh, and then walked in the back of the uh, Irving Shipyard where the steel was coming in, one end, and ships were coming out the other end. That's exactly how it works. Right? And it was impressive, like you wouldn't believe. We were excited to meet you that day because we had been in communication on LinkedIn and the like. You weren't there that day. Where were you?
2: You went dark for some you reason. went... Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was lying in a coma in the Halifax in- infirmary. So
0: take us there.
2: Wow. You know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. You know, I've, um, I've said this uh, to others. That COVID probably saved my life. And I don't think anyone expects those words in the same sentence. Right. And I had been working pretty hard at the, at the shipyard, and, um, and i have been golfing. and uh, But I just, I wasn't feeling well. And at the time, this we're talking just over a year ago, in fact, um, about a year, 15 months ago, at the time, I just wasn't feeling great, and we are getting ready to deliver the Margaret Brook to the Navy, literally. I'd done all the planning, everything else is ready to go. Okay, I'm going to be in at 7 o'clock in the morning because we're going to sign the paperwork of Ottawa, and we're going to turn over this fantastic vessel to the Navy. Big day. It was a big day. I was really excited. <laughs> you know, I've been working hard all week, but I just wasn't feeling great. So you're, you're, you're talking about a very public event
1: happening the next day?
2: Yes, yeah, it was. It, it, it would have been.
1: Um, right. Huge. Well, still would have been guest
2: with the limit of whatever COVID right. restrictions right. Oh, of, of the course. day. Yes, But, you know, an outdoor event it was going to involve yeah. the crew for the Margaret Brooks, which is the second vessel in the Ar- yeah. Ar- Arctic uh, Offshore Patrol program. And uh, anyway, so I, we had a rule that we were getting tested weekly anyway, a rapid test for the shipyard. And then if you had anything more serious, you had to take, you know, your PCR test. But if you weren't feeling great, and this is where good policy is vital the rule was and we'd had it from the start of the covid outbreak if you don't feel well show enough respect to your colleagues not to come in and go get tested right that's that to me that's a sign of respect as well as a sign of good policy management and so i just wasn't feeling great and I just I texted the team the night before. Said I don't think I'm going to be there for this early morning legal s- signatures that we need to do for insurance purposes and things like that to d- hand over the vessel. I said, but I should be there in time for the event in the afternoon that the public event will be. And I've written the speech, you know, for the president and you know for the handover and all this stuff. And uh, I said, so the next day I got up. I just didn't feel great. Went to my local COVID uh, testing center. My wife drove me. You know, I said, I'll pop in and get that done. Popped in and. I, was, I guess I was, there's was a lot of good fortune in my life. The person who took me in was a nurse. Now, a lot of these centers had a mixture of nurses or other persons, mm-hmm. because it's you know, administering the swab, and as long as there's nurse oversight and things like that, I'm, I believe you know, this is how they work. But I was lucky there was a nurse there who happened to take me. And so she you know, I said, how are you doing? Ah, not too great. You know, I think I don't know what it is, but it's just it kind of bothering me, but I need to get to work. You know? I need to get a test. So I took my test and then she ran my vitals and she said, just sit over here for a minute, I'm gonna get the other nurse over. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I gotta get ready for work tomorrow and we're delivering a ship and I just golfed in the club uh, match play, I got eliminated, you know, I walked the course, like, you know. Anyway, the next nurse came over and she ran my vitals, and she said, can you, just, can you just wait here for a minute? I'm gonna, I gotta call a doctor. I'm like, at this point I'm going, what is going on? And. Uh, so I'm, now I'm texting my wife out in the parking lot, yeah. you know, you like, uh, might want to get in here. And uh, so my wife just happened me come through the door as I'm getting this text. The nurse comes back and says, we just spoke to the doctor, here's his name. We've got an ambulance for you, it's on the way. I'm like... You've got to be kidding me. That's exactly what I said. Like, what, what is going on? You've got... No, you've got to get... We've got an ambulance. You have to get to the hospital. And I'm like, Tell, Well, my wife just walked the door. We can drive. They said, well, take this name. That's the doctor, they'll be waiting for you. And I'm like, they're gonna be waiting for me. Like, you know, I just golfed two days ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we drive down the hospital, and the person checking me in um, was a little, I, I say, checking me in. The person does the, one of the people doing the initial screening was, you know, you sit down, and I got I have the name here, here's the name of the person. The doctor, and they, no, I don't know that name. And they were kind of half indifferent, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I guess they've got a lot of things going on. And sure, sure. So you there. went in an ambulance? No, we drove. My wife dropped oh, okay. me in the door. She went to park. And uh, I went in and I sat down and I said, well, I got sent here from the COVID clinic. Here's the doctor's name. So they start the routine again, you know, doing my... Uh, sure. He got up and he ran into where the doctors and nurses were. He ran. in And they came running out and they all grabbed me. Just as my wife was coming in the door. And then they all ran me into a room and started putting oxygen into me. And I'm like, what is going on? And I was there for uh, several hours and that night I was uh, intubated, uh, put into a coma, and they called the family and said, you better get in here.
1: Uh, I'm struggling with this yeah. because you're, you've golfed two days before, well, you're obviously up walking, you're working.
2: Mm-hmm. So what was happening is my heart was failing and I didn't know. And. It was leading to a lack of oxygen and stuff moving through my body effectively, and I guess this is what they were picking up with all the vitals that they were checking. Mm-hmm. But it, apparently, that particular day we got to the point where it was it was critical, and I was induced in a coma. Uh, I was in a coma a month, and uh, my and there. Tr- what happened then? I also had double pneumonia because for the heart failure was causing the pneumonia. So now I had double pneumonia. So this is why I was coughing. Apparently, this is. October?
1: No, last? this is July. July,
2: that's right. Because you July. weren't there
1: when we went. That's right. And
2: so. Uh, and so my heart was failing. I didn't know. And so I was put into a coma, and then I went sep- sepsis, which is when you get the full body infection. My so now they're piling every every antibiotic and everything else into me. I had twenty different monitors at my bedside. I was fully uh, intubated, um, on life support, and I was uh, I was on life support forty one days in total. And they were trying to figure out how to. Well, they were trying to battle the infection and the the sepsis. That's what they were trying to battle, and the pneumonia, while monitoring my heart. But at first, they didn't know it was my heart. They figured that out the next day. They kind of did some tests and kind of eliminated it down to the valve of my heart was failing. So congestive heart failure is is the description. So this went on. So I was in a coma for a couple of weeks, and uh, they were planning on doing the surgery on one day. And then, so the doctor said, well, we're going to push it out a couple of days because there's two other people tomorrow who we'll need to have the surgery ahead of, of your husband, this doctor talking to my wife. The next morning, six o'clock, they phoned and said, you better get in here. We're doing the surgery now and bring the family. And I, I had crashed that morning. And one of the nurses had saved my life, basically, that morning. And so they pulled me forward to do the surgery. And then uh, they did surgery on me that day to replace the valve of my heart and repair it. Not uh, repair, it, not replace it. And then uh, I crashed on the table again. They spent three hours keeping me alive in the uh, in the operating room, brought the iron lung and everything in. And uh, I was uh, I was in a coma for two more weeks after that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I woke up, uh, no idea what had happened. No idea how I got there. No idea why everyone was around me. I didn't know where I was. The tubes come out of me everywhere. I was 41 days on life support. I was 63 days in total in intensive care. Um, you know, tracheotomy, that' scar. Plenty of scars all over. Uh, yeah, check you out and feeding tubes. I lost 51 pounds because I just was bedridden. I was in the hospital three months in total. Uh, pneumonia had come back. Double pneumonia had come back. Uh, m- multiple organ failure as well. Uh, multiple blood transfusions. The dialysis. Uh, yeah, it was quite a quite a ride. <laughs>
0: There's yeah. so much to. Well, we're glad you're here, Thank first you. of yeah. all. Well, so. Uh, so much to dive into. Um, I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show that's been in a coma. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I, I did. No one else. But, either, but, but the I'm way.
0: curious. Yeah. When you come out of that, you say you don't remember anything. Like you, you don't. Know, you remember how you got there?
2: Or? There's a. There's certainly for me, and I, I've come to understand for many others as well. There's a brain fog for quite a while. Um, you know I had other things go on as well I had microbleeds which are kind of mini stroke type events when I crashed in the operating room microbleeds in your brain or yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, and so you know there is this fog so I give a really good example first of all I woke up and with my wife at the end of the bed right, crying just telling me over and over how sick I was and uh and I'm just looking, and I couldn't, I couldn't move. I, you know, I'd lost all that weight. Literally, I couldn't lift. I had no strength. No muscle, I guess, at that no, point. No, yeah. no. I was 142 pounds.
1: Holy I'm 180 shit.
2: right now. So you can imagine what I looked like at 140. Yeah. Uh-huh. My grade, my grade nine weight, right? And well uh, what I'll give you an idea to your question though about remembering. So my sister-in-law also happened to be. She came down to give my wife some support and the family some support. And. Uh, I remember my sister-in-law being there and I was really confused why she was there because this is not what she does for a living. Right? She's not a nurse, but she was dressed in, um, in, the, uh, in a gown like a lot of the staff would be when you're around someone who might have had an infection or something.
1: It's still COVID is still a pretty big thing.
2: Yeah, and they thought maybe I had uh, picked up uh, shingles from somewhere in the hospital. I've been out for a month, so I have no idea. but uh, and she was there and then I remember telling me about I had to have my dialysis. And to this, up until a month ago, I thought that was the same conversation. Turns out the conversation was a week apart that wow. I had with her. Those two things of me seeing her for the first time and then her telling me about it. And I had to do my dialysis. It turns out that was seven days. I apparently, you know, this is kind of the brain fog. You wake up, you only have you know maybe two or three minutes of any kind of cognitive, and then you know you're so tired you go back to sleep. So my yeah. So they kind of figured it was it was quite a while after that. You know. I think you start piecing some things together, but not all of it.
0: Right. And. <laughs> upon reflection and the Mesotolia, but how was the family doing during all of this? It must have been chaotic.
2: Yeah, yeah it, from what certainly I was tell, I was told, and what they shared, and you know, some stuff I'm sure they still keep to themselves. Um, you know, for example, my daughter came down. She was down for 21 days. I wasn't awake the entire. I, was, I wasn't awake for any of it. I didn't know she was there.
1: Right.
2: Right. She'd taken leave and come down. And, she's uh,
1: living in.
2: Uh, she's up in Ontario. She's yeah. uh, in the army. Yeah. And. Uh, I didn't even know she was there. Right. All right. Didn't even know she'd been there and come back. They, they certainly one days. That's rough on her. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. To coming down, I'm in a coma and she left. I'm still in a coma, you know. And um, but I think they, yeah, they probably went through. And I've said, it, I, I think they went through more than I did. Mm-hmm. I went through physical stuff. Right. When I was out. Yeah. Yeah. I was out. You know, I was a month. I woke up. We had a new premier, in Nova Scotia. <laughs> you know. Right. Literally, you yeah. know, and like, gas prices had jumped up. And these were, you know, all this yeah. t- taking place while I was asleep and so but they saw it day to day like my wife's on my bed every day I was in hospital 83 days Wow 83 days and uh, you know they they you know they were called in uh, on two occasions to to say goodbye any
0: vivid memories or hallucinogens or anything yeah
2: everyone asked me that for sure I don't I didn't have much I think I was starting to get some I had some really strange dreams, but I think it was probably right before I, be- I, I woke up, because I was starting to pick up probably on some conversations okay. that were happening, right. you know. But there was one really strange one, like a recurring one I had. So this is for anyone who's lived in, in conception-based south, right? So there's IGA up in <laughs> here and it was me and my young fella, and uh, I was trying to buy ice cream, and they wouldn't sell me ice cream. And I had that one over and over again. Right? Sure. You know, we picked it out, we got to the counter, and, no, we can't sell it to you. And uh, I think what it was is I'd had feeding tubes in, and again, I had a tracheotomy, and I had all the, And I guess my throat was so sore or damaged, what I was look, probably looking for right? Because that was the first words I spoke to the nurse. When I, the first words I spoke when I came to, and not just, it took me a while before I could speak after I came to, but when I finally tried to speak, the first words I got out of my mouth, and the nurse's ear was right here, was ice cream. So I, I probably, the irritation from everything that was going on, I was probably subconsciously wanting ice cream for my throat. But that was a, it was a strange dream I was having that I kept going to the IGA to sell it to me. I don't want
1: to make light of anything you've been through, <laughs> but man, imagine the PR you could do for an ice cream company.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, here you talk about strange now. So 41 days in, uh, on life support, coma for a yes. month, 83 days in the hospital, heart failure, all the other things that went on. And my insurance company told me I wasn't sick enough for critical insurance. <laughs> they told me I wasn't. Turned turned down by critical insurance. I'm like, really? Like, what, what do you need to do? What do you need, uh, to, do do, you you know. need to do at this point? Right. Right? You know? uh, so.
0: Tom, uh, remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable, and what a strong family you must
2: have. Oh, I'm blessed. I'm right. absolutely blessed. Right? Yeah. I mean, I had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to eat again. Um, you know, to this day, despite how much I talk, I mean, my jaw still do not open fully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, scars. like. can't even tell me scars So gone. why, why yeah. would that be? Was it because of the eight work months being done on you weeks, uh, seven, eight weeks of not using them. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Clean, muscle. I lost 27 per, 27% of my body mass. Right? Wow. Yeah. When, I, uh, when I was in hospital, 27% of my body mass. Right? I, had, I literally had to learn how to walk again. You know. Wow.
0: Tom, did you have occasion to run in to those nurses? and people that were in the right place at the right time not, to not get you since, to where you are now?
2: Not since. Though, one of us, uh, one, one nurse uh, and our family, we're are, are connected socially on social media, um, another Newfoundlander, but she was uh, she was terrific. But, but no, because so much COVID restrictions mm. about you know accessing hospitals right. and being in hospitals, it's just really difficult to to get. It's, it's different now in the last, I think, six or eight weeks or something like that. So, I, you know, we have plans to go back, but uh, I wanted to go back sooner. But there were so many COVID restrictions about yeah. accessing a hospital that, you know, you just couldn't. Like, for example, my family can only come in one person at a time. Yeah, And if you changed out that person, they couldn't come back for another week. Right. Right, so you couldn't have someone pop in to check on you the next day, and no, it was one person per week basically. That really complicated it for you. No wonder your family had it
1: harder than you, frankly. They sure did, and
2: they saw everything. They had to make some some pretty difficult decisions, you know. Um, So, uh,
1: Tom, uh, your mom and dad, where were they in all of this as it was going on? Because they live in Ontario, correct?
2: Yes, yeah, but my wife was uh, the hub for everything, right? She kept everyone informed, um, you know, and. uh, and, uh, What's your name, Tom? uh, Sharon. Yeah, yeah. She, I probably uh, would have met your wife yeah, all absolutely. those years ago, yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, so she kept everyone together and uh, shared all the information that, that she could. And, uh, you know, um, she was certainly the rock for all of that, you know. And our, uh, our kids are, you know, like, everyone's proud of the kids, mm-hmm. and I think they're pretty strong, too. But, I mean, they saw more than any child should.
1: Right.
2: You know, I mean, I was in a pretty bad way. Yeah. You know, if I... Uh, you know, when I woke up, too, like I couldn't move my arm. I couldn't see a one of my eyes because there was an infection in my eye I picked up when I was in a coma. And my arms got damaged somehow. You know, so I've got a torn rotator cuff, and uh, I couldn't. You know, it was quite a quite a state, right? I mean, you know, I went home with a walker. I had to use a walker when I got home. Um, wow. Yeah.
0: People often, uh, well, uh, many many people would complain about health care in Canada, but I'm sure you're not one of them. Oh no. <laughs> and, you
2: know, it, it, yeah, it's funny. We have those conversations too, and I. I'm sure there's improvements that can be made anywhere, and maybe there's improvements in the healthcare system, but to a person who look after me, yeah it's not the people, right it's not the right. people they're doing their best with yeah. what they've got, you know, and what they were dealing with was pretty tough stuff, uh, you know, but sure, could they use better machines? I'm sure they can, and is there a better way to do stuff? I'm sure there is, but to the people i I had the good fortune of looking after me, they were all doing their very best, so I was lucky there. Yeah.
0: Wow, okay, so uh, we could spend hours uh, diving into this. You've had a wonderful career in the past. That is quite a deviation from everything. What's over the horizon for... Tommy O.
2: Yeah, well, so it's interesting, right? I'm uh, so I'm, I'm finished up with the shipyard. I finished up uh, just uh, about two weeks ago with the shipyard, and um, and so now I'm kind of thinking, you know, this is my uh, this is my Lisa La moment here now. <laughs> I, you know, I'm still I'm still uh, you know young enough to uh, to want to work, uh, but I'm not sure uh, what direction that's going to take me. Yet. I've had some people say, well, I'd love you to do some coaching and consulting and run some workshops. Cause I do um, a lot of crisis management and crisis training and things like that, and you know, but. You know, I'd, I'd still like to be working. Uh, you know, I, my my health has come back. I've been uh, I worked really hard um, on my uh, rehabilitation. I had home care for about three months, um, and you know, to deal with some other issues. I had a lot of lingering issues, but you know, I'm a year. It was as we are recording this. It's a year and two days since I got out of hospital. Wow! And uh, you know, I put the weight back on that I wanted to put on. You know, I've. Uh, I've exceeded the benchmark for people of my age who um, who do a, a, the stress test, basically that you know on treadmill and stuff like that. So you know, a clean bill of health that way. You know, I still have a lot of inflammation in my body and things like that. It's slowly going back to normal levels, but you know, at one time the inflammation in my body was more than seven times the normal level. Like you know, so like like arthritic um, full body because of the infection and everything yeah. else. You know, I was down forty pounds. I couldn't get my wedding ring on. Uh, so badly my joints are swollen, things like that. You know? wow. So those things, but I'm overcoming those. So I, I do want to work, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking about hanging out my own shingle, you know. Uh, but if someone says, hey, you know, we need you on the team, I'm happy to chat too. So I, I don't want to stop working just yet, right? A lot of things I'd like to accomplish still, so.
0: There's keep, an obvious question here. Yeah. Have you ever thought about writing a book?
2: I have. I have about the experience. Right. For sure. Um, so many publishers out there, you know, give me a call. Uh, but yeah, we have because I think there's some good lessons um, in there to share with people. Uh, one of the things that they told my uh, family was one of the reasons I survived was because of the general health I had when I was sick. You know, the lifestyle that we led. You know, so people have teased me for years. I don't. I drink decaf coffee. You know, I don't do sugar. I don't do salt. I exercise. You know, you know I do enjoy. You know, an adult beverage. I won't lie. But uh, my general health was was in good uh, form right. and the doctors had said on more than one occasion that helped me get through what I went through because I right. I was told by someone from the healthcare uh, side of things that more than 90% of the people that went through what I went through don't make it.
0: I'm sure that's so
2: you know so there's some really good lessons there I think you know and then some good lessons on recovery out. Uh, the mental part of recovery was hard because I, I was frightened there's two things that frightened me to death. The first one was when I saw myself in the mirror. I was 142 pounds. I'm just, I'm almost six one. I was 142 pounds. I, I looked, and scars notwithstanding, because the scars, are, you know, yeah. I can get that part, but I just looked emaciated, and yeah. I couldn't, I, I had no strength. There was skin hanging off my body. You know, it was just, you know, my hair was falling out, and it was just, it was a... a was, litany of issues. Yeah, I just looked at myself, like, is this me? Like, what? And then, then I got readmitted to the hospital two weeks after I got out, and they thought I had a heart attack. And I, I hadn't had a heart attack the first time. And so, well, it turned out it was uh, pericarditis, which is a swelling of the lining around the heart. Mm-hmm. And this is why I had so much inflammation in my body and things like that. Apparently, it's not uncommon. But I was really scared that I might have had a heart attack. I'd just been in hospital for three months. I was home two weeks and I was back in. And I said, oh, if this is a heart attack two weeks after all that care. This I thought uh, this is this is not a good road to be down, but no. they, they determined it wasn't. It was the pericarditis, which was which was um, you know, something they can treat with basically ninety days of medication. You know, and, and they did so. Um,
1: uh, did, did did your I know you had a healthy lifestyle from a, a food perspective, but you know this is this podcast is is a business-oriented podcast. Yeah. We have a lot of people, men and women, yeah. in very responsible positions watching and listening did any of your particular way of working contribute to this
2: i don't believe so it's not again because not heart attack Mm. right you know which can be brought on by stress and things like that um it just appears that you know the valve in my heart in one of the doctors thinks i may have actually been born with a valve that over time was it just finally gave out so i don't think it's that but to your point though jerry i think it's really important to for those who have the ability to um, put policy together or benefits together. The wellness part is so important for the workforce. Whether it is you know making sure they just work the hours they should work to stay healthy, you know, uh, make sure they get you know enough time to have sleep, encourage you know fitness to the point of people are healthy. I mean, we we have a culture here in Canada, and it certainly seems to be in Atlanta, Canada that where you know uh, whether it's obesity or overweight issues appear to be much much higher than they should be. North America. I guess you could say it as well, mm-hmm. and you know that that would be my message to those in, in power or positions of power influences. You know, is, are you are you providing your team members that kind of um, support? You know, both mentally, you know, and emotionally, um, to find out, you know, how can you make their lives healthy? How can you help make their lives healthy? Is they mm-hmm. gonna? It's it's an individual's choice at the end of the day. It's my choice not to have caffeine, right? Because I know it's not good for me. It's my choice not to have. Sugar. Add sugar to my stuff and sugar beverages and stuff like that. And, you know, I make those choices, right? But some people need help making those choices. Mm-hmm. And if you have the ability to do it, it, whether it's through your organization or otherwise, you know, that's that would be my message: is to really put, you know, try to try to get involved in that because that's what apparently helped save me.
1: Well, just I want to jump in there, Alan. I mean, uh, in the I was in the newspaper business after the radio mm-hmm. business, and that had daily deadlines. There are some individuals that never survived in that particular role, but I did and I thrived on it. I guess it's problematic part of it was I'm so passionate about that industry. I'm very passionate about what Al and I are doing and uh, I do know, Alan and I have talked about this, like tomorrow we're going to be at DevSec we're going to produce 30 interviews in three days. It's, I worry sometimes about my own intensity and I'm trying to rein it back. You're smiling, I see. You know, but to be successful in business, you've got to have intensity.
2: Where, well, like, give us some advice, please. I'm reaching <laughs> out to you. Well, you know, it's funny. So I'm a I'm a PR guy, yeah, public relations guy. But what we work in our industry on setting what's the goal. What's the goal? Yeah. All right. And so, and it's funny because I've got a lot of work for a lot of presidents, CEOs, and when I put forward, you know, my um, uh, I guess the measurements of what we are going to be uh, trying to attain in the bi- coming business year. I have to go through this coaching thing with every new one because I'll put down things like, you know, safety targets being achieved. And they're looking at me going, well, that's the job of the safety person. I'm going, no, no. It's my job to support the safety team mm-hmm. right. to get to those numbers. Stop Just it. like it's my job to help the production team mm-hmm. to get to their production numbers. So, what do I have to do to help that team? And so, to me, it's about goal setting. You know, you're you're going to DevSec, and for those who are watching the the here, it's a it's a defense uh, show here every year in Halifax in October. It's one of the big ones in the country. And you know, if you've got 30 interviews, I mean, to me, you know, you've set a goal for yourself. You know, and is it realistic? And we've all heard about smart goals. You know, it's measurable and attainable yeah. and, and things like that. But I think it's always the goal at the end of the day. So the inte- for me is passion. I think like you call it intensity. I call a passion. I think there's a difference, mm-hmm. right, you know. But then, with that passion, it's still recognizing things like, "Am I at my best? What's ho- what's stopping me from being at my best?" I've told my team members many times because we've done so much. We've done a lot in crisis management. We've flown all around the country and stuff like that to deal with issues. But I still make sure: Have you eaten?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, how much sleep did you get? You know, this like sometimes going to work around the clock. No, no, <laughs> you, you know, don't. You can't work around the clock yeah. because you're not going to be at your best exactly. when I need you, yeah. you know, or when the team needs you, right? So set of your goals and making sure the team is set up for success and so is 30 interviews over three days attainable mm. that's your I don't know your field to say that is or isn't but it seems like a lot
1: Oh it's attainable <laughs> but it's yeah. a lot. But uh, so, You know I'll say something I, 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 frankly I'm amazed that you're willing to throw your hat back in the ring uh, after what you've been through you deserve a break. C- give us an idea of this. why, why Tom? Why put your hat back in the ring of business?
2: Well, it's not necessarily just about business, but it's just, I enjoy the field of public relations. I enjoy, because public relations ideally is two way relationships. That's really what public relations is about. And I enjoy um, getting to those mutual goals. You know, I enjoy the style of work, I enjoy coaching. I enjoy coaching so much more at this stage of my career. You know, I really keen when I take on someone on the team. You know, let's work on on your professional development. Yeah. I think that's probably what drives me the most. I I, st- I have a lot. I believe I have a lot still to give, and if it's in the coaching space or developing of teams and things like that, that's that's probably probably the at the end of the day is what's driving me. I don't want to I don't want to not share what I've been so lucky enough to learn, right. and I've learned from some t- unbelievable people, and I just want to pass that stuff on. And so that to me. You know, I can do it in a setting where there's you know, still business goals being achieved, but there's individual team goals and individual development goals being achieved at the same time.
0: You know? Tom, we often ask our guests on Gale Force Winds to leave the audience with a, a piece of advice. Now, you're a guy who's had a remarkable journey, a tremendous emotional event in the middle of it mm-hmm. for you and your family. Coming out the other end, you look like a million bucks. Oh, thank you. you can tell an amazing story. You, you're, it's, uh, you're clearly back on your game, yeah. or clearly very close to that on your game right now. Um, what would that piece of advice be? What would you say to people?
2: I just probably just build off what I was just sharing with Jerry and yourself there about um, that personal development. All right, that's so important. Like I, I've seen in my career where. Now it gets one of the first budget items that gets shaved when numbers start getting tight. You know, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh we can't we can't do that training, we can't that stuff has to continue. Because if you keep empowering your team and your, and your and your and your employees and your colleagues through that, then they'll keep bringing more to the table. Yeah. Right? That's to me that's the advice is, you know, keep keep that professional development going. And and I know there's different models, you know, like oh you can be taught in-house with a mentor. Okay, great. But make sure it's a really good quality mentorship program, right. not just something ad hoc on the back of a napkin. Like keep developing your team, and because your team will, they'll they'll want to keep putting stuff back into the organization because you're putting stuff into them. Right. Right. To me, that that would be my advice. Jerry, your thoughts? <laughs> hey. missed me after all these years, didn't you? Listen, you are
1: always an impressive individual. You have certainly, your personal growth journey has has been spectacular. I can just tell, Alan, you're so impressed with this conversation, so am I. I mean, it's one thing, Tom, to talk about your business journey. It's another thing to have that near-death experience and be in a coma for how many days again? A month. I, I, I can't even begin to express. Uh, my thanks to you for telling us about this because when we talked I wasn't sure if you wanted to go down that road but I'm sure anyone watching this is very thankful that you're such a good communicator and you're willing to share that story because frankly you know this is an amazing uh, experience to be sitting next to you and, and just I am so inspired to do better because of what you've been through and I appreciate you for being here.
2: I appreciate those words, Jerry. We've been friends for a long time.
0: One last question. Yes. What was it like walking up on the stage with the chieftains?
2: Well, I emceed the show, which was uh, which was wonderful, and uh, it was just you know it was they're they're legends, right? They're right. They're absolute legends. But I I will tell you that uh, I'd seen them in rehearsal. I knew how good they were. They filled that stadium with nobody in it musically like it was just like if someone had come down from mars and walked in there they would have known these guys are good (laughs) right what a what a feeling to be there with the chieftains and 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 all of the chieftains right right again we've lost some since right that's a whole other episode that's
0: why i left it like that because i feel we'll be back if he's willing to sit with us of course Well, another wonderful episode of Gale Force Winds on a journey from Ontario to Glasgow, through Newfoundland, working with some amazing Canadian companies, some amazing Atlantic Canadian companies as well. Building ships for our country being a big part of that, and uh, that's important to Jerry and I. And then down a journey uh, into the healthcare uh, feel like I've never heard before. Simply spectacular. I can tell you this, with all honesty, the world needs more Tom, Tommy, Thomas, Tommy-O for sure. Thanks very much for your Thank you, time.
1: Alan. I appreciate it. Tommy-O, back on the air again. Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> good to be with you. Cheers. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Winds. That's galeforcewinds, W-I-N-S dot com.